This is an ABC podcast. Welcome to the Philosopher's Zone with me, David Rutledge, and a program marking the occasion of a Lunar New Year. Today, we're talking about an architectural feature, the courtyard. For many Westerners, the courtyard is just that. It's an architectural feature. It's open to the sky, so it's a nice place to hang out on a sunny day. It's also a place where we can hang out with other people. In Chinese culture, the courtyard is all of that, but it's also a lot more. Today's guest has written a rather wonderful new book about the significance of the courtyard in Chinese philosophy, in Chinese history, and in modern China, where the kind of architecture that favours the courtyard is being edged aside by apartment buildings. And that, too, tells us something about what's going on below the surface of Chinese society. Xing Ruan is a Chinese-Australian academic who, until recently, was Professor of Architecture at the University of New South Wales. He's currently Dean and Professor of Architecture in the School of Design at Shanghai Jiao Tong University. And his new book is Confucius's Courtyard, Architecture, Philosophy and the Good Life in China. A recurrent theme in the book is the way in which the courtyard, basically an open quadrangle surrounded by buildings, symbolises what's known as the middle way, which is a fundamental principle in Confucian thought. There are many aspects of the middle way. So let me mention a few that I wrote at the outset of the book. For example, enjoying an earthly life for what it's worth, while maintaining a certain awe before heaven's arch. That's one. Participating actively in society and taking responsibility for one's family, while snatching a moment away to indulge in life's pleasures, or retreating to one's inner world. That's two. And the third one, I think it's very relevant uh, to our time, while we are still living in this pandemic era, that is, staying put in the house while letting the mind and the soul roam freely beyond it. So the Chinese managed somehow to do so in and about the confines of their encircled courtyard dwelling. So teaching in the middle was a way of living as well as a state of mind, I would suggest. Right. And here we're talking about the middle way in terms of of ethics, if you like, of of a kind of practice. How does it relate specifically to Chinese architecture? I think there are two aspects we probably can pay attention to. One is that because it's an encircled building and you have buildings, if it's a a quadrangle, it's on the four sides of, of the block of the land. And then the middle is a void. It opens only uh, to heaven. And therefore, uh, the middle becomes rather tangible and accessible. But I think another point that is uh, fascinating is that the center is a void. The center is not an object. And therefore, that leaves space for imagination. But too often, we, we see architecture, particularly in the Western mindset, as a a physical template for life to unfold, which is largely true. Um, But there's this sort of difference in Chinese mindset. And the courtyard, in my view, is more a conceptual apparatus. And the the physical template, yes, it is there, but uh, it is not its form, its shape, its dimension. It's not what it looks like that matters. That's interesting because the thing that 
strikes me as being a, a salient feature of the courtyard is that it is enclosed, which might lead a Western observer to see it as a, a formal expression of the inner life, the interior life, or the life of the mind, you might say. Is that, in fact, what the courtyard represents, or is, or is that a misconception of some kind? Uh, yes and no. Uh, you know, what, what interests me is that the whole concept of the interior mind or the interior landscape of mind or the interiority, uh, generally speaking, never appeared in pre-modern Chinese literature. But that does not suggest the Chinese had no interior life. And what I would like to suggest is that it is a different kind of interior life that is not so intrinsically related to the individual. And uh, a Confucian being, on the one hand, is an individual, and Confucius encourages free and independent thinking. But on the other hand, a Confucian being is always a social being. You can never be divorced from the family, from your social responsibility, etc. And then we return to the middle way. It is this balance one has to adjust back and forth. So the middle way is never a static state of mind. It's always a dynamic state of mind. Now, that is interesting because there's a fine line between what can be allowed in the Chinese mind that is leaning towards idiosyncrasy and the complete indulgence in the individual fantasy. Not so much, not so much. Yes, you can. I described in the book some the interesting stories of the Chinese life in the courtyard. You can indulge in a little bit of your bad taste. You can indulge in much of the pleasure in life. But there's always this interesting balance. So there's the actual progression in the courtyard and the, where you know your place. But there are side doors. You can sneak out to the garden. But the garden is also equally enclosed. You can drink wine. You can recite a poem. You can do other things. You can loosen up a little bit. But it is not that kind of individuality that we today take for granted. Well, of course, the, the ancient Greeks and Romans also built courtyards. Did those courtyards function in the same way or, or represent the same set of virtues as the ancient Chinese courtyard? From the very beginning, the Greek and the, the Roman courtyards and the, the Chinese courtyard, let's say if we take the time Confucius when he was alive in 500 uh, BCE, the courtyards have one common feature, and uh, I would like to call it verticality. So it's a kind of vertical living. You are fenced off from the external world, and you form a sort of earth and the heaven relationship. So in a Roman domus and the first courtyard, same as the Chinese courtyard, this is the place where, you know, the ancestors commemoration and also different kind of seasonal ceremonies would occur. But the interesting difference which was there from the very beginning. I, I think, you know, although I have not done sufficient research, I have made much speculation on this, is that a Roman courtyard, for example, we have all visited Pompeii. Uh, it is open 
to the civic world. So the atrium uh, at the same time uh, functions as a public lobby. So anyone could walk in from the street. Uh, those ones who wanted a favor from a magistrate or from a lawyer would queue there. But the Chinese courtyard, both in antiquity and also in later periods, uh, there's always a screen in front of the front door. So it is not easy for you to walk into uh, the courtyard. Uh, you must pause before the screen and uh, clear your thought and walk around it. And in later periods, the screen retreated into the courtyard. So you have to make a turn. It's not a direct entry. And uh, the whole concept of the family, the transformation from the tribal society to the family-based society and the courtyard is a very uh, uh, vivid representation of it. So I think that's interesting because that horizontal distraction in relation to the verticality in, in Western mind, it's more uh, to do with the axis mundi, may have something to do with the great divergence that happened in, in the European civilization, the Chinese civilization. So there has been this remarkable stability and uh, remarkable static sort of the uh, nature of the Chinese courtyard as a concept. With respect to that quality of verticality, as you call it, you mentioned the concept of heaven there, that the courtyard is open to heaven, and that's a particularly important aspect of it. It's very difficult, I think, in an Anglo-European context to to get rid of all the baggage of Christian teaching and tradition that, that heaven carries with it. What does it mean in Chinese philosophy? This is probably one of the most difficult questions. Even Confucius uh, avoided to answer it, David. <laughs> um, so heaven is the equivalent of nature and what nature demands is also what the heaven demands and then that often must be reasonable so confucius at some point said well i i, I wish to speak no more and uh, one of the pupils said if you don't speak master what are we going to do and then confucius answered does heaven ever speak no no it doesn't and uh, and and yet the four seasons will continue I, I suppose to put it in a very different way, heaven in Chinese mind represents this order and cosmic order, and it's also an ethical decree. And therefore, it is not something that is anthropomorphic. So it, it has never been humanized if you use uh, Christianity as a comparison. And uh, it is abstract, it is uh, formless. But it, it is also acutely aware of what's happening on the earth. You mentioned there that it represents, heaven represents the, the cosmic order. But at the same time, it strikes me as being quite a modest concept. And this is, this is reflected in the courtyard, which is also a sort of a modest space in a sense. It, it's open to heaven, but it's, it's not some sort of imposing structure or, or you know, sacred space that's only accessible to a priestly elite. And at one point in your book, you, you quote what I take to be a Confucian aphorism, and that is that in one's mode of living, true splendor comes down to blandness. That's a lovely oxymoron. Is, is that what it's getting at, that sort of modesty? Modesty, yes. But uh, I, I think I would like to phrase it more as 
a kind of middle way that is always regarded as being reasonable. Because Confucius never actually demand people to be superhumans. And he's not a saint. And he never pretends to be a saint. So Confucius is this uh, uh, reasonable guy, warm-hearted. And uh, if nature demands humans to be human, superhumans, that would not be right in Confucius' mind. So heaven is not superimposing. And uh, uh, people often say in the conventional wisdom, uh, there's no true religion in China. So Confucianism is not a religion. It's, it's the promulgation of a way, promulgation of a way of life, uh, which is largely true. But that does not mean there's this no acute humility and respect for heaven and for this heavenly moral decree. And therefore, there is a solid moral foundation. Despite that, uh, the civilization has been largely regarded as a secular society, but it's not materialistic. It's not a materialist. You're in the courtyard of the Philosopher's Zone this week with me, David Rutledge, and my guest, Xing Ruan, who's Professor of Architecture at Shanghai Jiao Tong University. He's also the author of Confucius's Courtyard, Architecture, Philosophy, and the Good Life in China. We've been talking about the courtyard with respect to Chinese history and, and ancient China. Let's talk about modernity and how things have changed. And if I fly to Beijing or Shanghai tomorrow and, and start wandering about the place, how hard will I have to look to find courtyards of, of the kind that we've been talking about? There are not many courtyards in Shanghai, and Shanghai is, a, relatively speaking, in the Chinese history, or it's, it's a new city. You know, Shanghai uh, was a, a market town before the Opium War, and it started as a modern metropolis. So the English and the Europeans started building something like terrace houses, and that, were, that was turned into a hybrid, the so-called alleyway housing. Uh, so no, and the, you probably will only find a few courtyards that have been re uh, preserved as uh, as museums and things like that. But in Beijing, and uh, you can still easily find many of them, and uh, some ordinary citizens are still living in courtyards. Um, the forms are still there, and the certain fabric of the city uh, are still preserved as, as what I call a matrix of courtyards or a tapestry of courtyards. But whether or not they still work in the same way as the Confucian world, and it's a different story. So the answer is yes, you will find courtyards throughout China, but whether or not the kind of way of living, which I described, the Confucius own courtyard, for example, you may not see that anymore. Yeah. Right, because th there's a familiar story in the West, of course, that we tell ourselves about how how the vertical gave way to the horizontal as the the Renaissance or the scientific revolution sort of removed God from the centre of society and ushered in a, a modern age of secular humanism. And I, I actually have all sorts of problems with that account of, of the history of modernity in the West, but it, it's very much the dominant narrative. What about in China, where 
we see a new sort of verticality taking place as urbanisation sees more and more people living in apartment towers and the courtyard becomes something of a relic of the past. What's happened to those Confucian ideals that the courtyard represents? Are they also in retreat, do you think? Well, uh, first of all, the fact that people uh, are living in multi-storey or high-rise apartments does not suggest that it's verticality and it's more horizontal, much like what has happened in the Western world, because a high-rise building are the floor uh, plates that are uh, stacked uh, one on top of the other. So it's an outward-looking way of living. It's still the horizon, and it's still the appear of the capacious world. So I think uh, from that point of view, China is no different. But I think the fascinating question is whether or not the Confucian world has been completely lost. And uh, my sense is that no, no, because a courtyard should not be simply regarded as a physical template where life unfolds. Uh, To put it differently, whether or not this physical template or spatial configuration is the precursor of the Chinese idea of the world, of the middle, I think it's debatable. And yes, it's important, but whether or not the important exists in literature or people's mind, or it has to be uh, represented by the physical build fabric. In Chinese culture in particular, literature and the conceptual apparatus probably hold more potency than the physical template. That is very different from uh, the European culture, where certain uh, mindset may need to be supported by a spatial configuration or by a form. I think if we talk about you know, the development of the individual in relation to the development of uh, uh, segregation in spatial terms, and uh, you can see that difference. Right, and this is something that you that you write about in the book, the, the way in which the building in Chinese architecture is strangely unimportant. There, there's something ephemeral about a, a Chinese building in the way that isn't the case, say, if you look at the history of architecture in, in Europe, where, you know, people are building these giant Gothic cathedrals, and it's all about achieving immortality in stone. But that's the, the, the Chinese architecture is, is, is going in quite an opposite direction. Am, am I right? Uh, very true, very true. And uh, if you look at the way uh, the pre-modern Chinese buildings uh, were constructed, whether or not it was a royal palace or a humble house. And uh, the construction method was more or less the same. So you have the timber framework and you have masonry walls. It it could be built with some refinement, but it could also be built shoddily, Um, but it was never built to last forever. So permanence in buildings was not the primary consideration. And that also explains why the whole idea of heritage preservation in China is a novelty. You know, people are mad about heritage buildings. In Shanghai, 
you see these young people having their photos taken in front of a colonial building that was built in the early 20th century, late 19th century. And uh, all these buildings become very popular, iconic kind of uh, internet sensation. But that's a novelty. Uh, in the Chinese mind, the idea is much more powerful. Hence, if we are talking about the interior life, it's this internalization of the thought that holds the, the importance. So let me give you this, this example. In the late 17th century or 18th century and the 19th century English house, uh, the segregation of the rooms and also the differentiation of different functions and the use of corridor. And so you are enclosed in your room and you are in your own world. And uh, conventionally uh, speaking, this has something to do with this slow development of self-consciousness, particularly in the English culture. Now, in China, courtyard as a concept is much more important, but you can sit in an open pavilion that is open to outside. With external change around you, the internal consistency must persist. And that is promoted by, by Zhuangzi, the famous the Taoist uh, uh, sage. And uh, although different from the Confucian idea, but they are, they are complementary to each other. So for the Chinese, immortality or the hope for immortality, they do not invest their hope for in immortality in stone and, and mortar. It's the literature that has, that has a longer life. I, I have a question, though, about whether the courtyard is just an expression of a certain kind of Confucian ideal or whether it's also maybe a, a driver and, and generator of that ideal. Because if the courtyard becomes eclipsed in Chinese life, then so do the rituals and the practices and the everyday encounters that take place within it. And I, I'm interested in those those rituals and practices, the social aspect of it. And, and w when you say that, if I take you correctly, that there's there's something sort of persisting within the DNA of Chinese culture, which is expressed in, in literature and other forms, where do we see the evidence for it in modern Chinese society, in, in those, those rituals and practices? Do they still exist in, in, in some form or other? No, you probably will be disappointed. And uh, if you visited Shanghai these days, you would realize much of what, what you see is, is, is very similar to what you get in Sydney. <laughs> Remarkably uh, similar. Uh, but you must scratch the surface and go beyond the postcard image of a city and a city life. And talking about the sort of a rigid uh, parade of uh, rituals and the ceremonies, and uh, you see a bit of that, but I think that also is superficial. And uh, looking beyond that is fascinating. And uh, talking about the good and the, and the morality, you see much of that in a person's upbringing in China and that the family values. And I do not suggest that, you know, people are all very literate and that they have read uh, Confucius uh, Analects. No, far, far from that. Many of them have never read it. But it's the generation of the generation and the, the recycle of these things that are imbued in a mode of living. 
And I think uh, that is something that is beyond the form. And I, I, I mentioned in the book, form and the meaning do not necessarily correspond to each other. So if you look at the, some of the beautiful courtyards built by the minorities, I mentioned the Nashi in Yunnan province. I, I grew up in Yunnan province. They build courtyards. They have learned the techniques from the Chinese. And the, the meaning of it is completely different. So form and the meaning can correspond with each other, or they may or may not. And I, I think the Chinese culture is really at this uh, fascinating point of, uh, of transformation, whether or not the fine things of the tradition can be consciously restored. Uh, we can turn, turn the clock back if we want to restore them. And uh, talking about Confucius, it is very critical to restore Confucius as this real, authentic, and warm human being with shortcomings, not as a sage. So I, I guess it's a long-winded <laughs> answer to your question. No, but it's it's very interesting though, because it it seems to me that, and I will maybe end with this with this observation that you're you're an optimist when you when you look at modern China. I mean, there are many people who look at modern China or look at modern you know any, almost any modern nation and see a process of of, of decay or decadence, and you know the, the the good things are all passing and all the new things are terrible. This is not your take on modern China. I'm I'm thinking. Well, I I think we are living in interesting times or interesting times ahead of us, because this cliche of the clash of civilizations is in our face. And uh, one of the reasons that I took so much trouble to write this book, first and foremost, I, I wrote the book for myself, because I wanted to clarify for myself whether or not I can live a morally sound life, given my upbringing came from a secular society. I'm not a, you know, a conventional speaking, a religious person. And uh, China occupies a huge chunk of humanity. And uh, the dialogue between, again, I, I use this gross generalization between Western civilization and, and the Chinese civilization is ever more timely and important. And uh, you just have to strike a connection and a meaningful dialogue. Because, you know, in China and uh, the buzzword is a global community of shared future. And uh, regardless of its uh, rhetorical aspect, it is true. <laughs> and uh, anything that we talk about today, anything that, that is of global importance, say climate change, without this meaningful dialogue, there will be no hope. So yes, I'm, I'm optimistic. And uh, I have written this book to strike a connection for dialogue. Yeah. Well, that's an upbeat note on which to finish. Xing uh, Ruan, it's, uh, it's been wonderful talking to you. Such a good book, and I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks so much for coming on the program. Oh, thank you so much, David. It's been a pleasure talking to you. And Xing Ruan is Professor of Architecture at Shanghai Jiao Tong University. His book, which I thoroughly recommend, is Confucius's Courtyard, Architecture, Philosophy and the Good Life in China. 
And you've been listening to The Philosopher's Zone with me, David Rutledge. You can find me right here every week. I'm also on Twitter at David P. Zone. All the info about today's program is on the Philosopher's Zone website. And of course, you can follow us via the ABC Listen app or wherever you go for your podcasts. Thanks for your company this week. See you next time. Mm-hmm.